Hello and welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you're joining us this Friday here in Tucson, Arizona. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long broadcast dedicated to and guided by your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, if you have questions on Scripture, uh, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture that's befuddled you, or perhaps something going on in your life you'd like a biblical perspective, or even world events, uh, prophetic things, all that kind of stuff, any honest question, as long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers, that's what we're here to do at A Reason for Hope. And so we're very glad that you'll join us on our various live platforms. With me today on this Friday is father-son team, Scott Richards and Sean Richards. How are you guys doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's yeah. so much fun being here. Yeah, you guys need to let me know when you're going with the blue theme. I feel left out with the green. <laughs> the green, Blue and green don't traditionally go together. But well, so. don't worry, Dave. I'm so profoundly colorblind, I don't even know I'm wearing blue today. So. <laughs> well, I'm wearing a blue shirt then. <laughs> <Okay>. just... <laughs> you could have fooled me with the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, it's good to see you guys. I'm excited about uh, where the show's going to go today. We're very grateful for you, the viewer. We've got some great regulars and new people that come. And once again, you can send your questions in. This This time is guided by your questions so we welcome any question as long as it's an honest question of the heart and a question uh, seeking an answer from uh, scripture as well so as i mentioned reason for hope is a live broadcast we are here monday through friday 5 to 6 p.m uh, mountain standard time or wherever that may be around the world you can reach us as long as you have internet which is very exciting a reason for hope is a ministry and outreach of calvary christian fellowship of tucson arizona so Keep that in mind as you're trying to find us on various platforms. You can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. Go to the Watch Live tab right there. That will take you to our live page where you'll see a countdown to our next broadcast. Not only a reason for hope, but our regular services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Or if we are currently live, you'll see the live video right there. There'll be a chat function where you can join in the discussion there as well. That direct link is ccftucson.online.church, but you can just follow that link from our website. We always say that the website's a great fallback place. It's something that we have a little more control over rather than you know Facebook or YouTube or some of these things. That's kind of a good home base. So keep that in mind if you have technical issues elsewhere. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook. That's where you'll find us there, facebook.com slash Tucson. Once again, look for our live video and of course the chat function there as well. And before I forget, don't forget to, to like and subscribe and to share and all that good stuff on these various platforms. We'd love to get the word out to more people, have more people involved in our broadcast, hopefully be a blessing. So do like, subscribe, share, click the bell on YouTube, all that kind of uh, good stuff. Uh, we have a mobile app as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Search for that in your uh, mobile, uh, your uh, app store, I should say whether that's on iPhone or Android, also on Roku and Apple TV. So you can watch us on your big screen um, for a little while before you shut it off because we're just too large, we understand. And then on YouTube, A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel there. Officially, youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546 or just search for A Reason for Hope. Look for the little picture there of Scott and Sean in uh, Israel. And that's our channel. We'll be live there as well. Uh, you can follow Pastor Scott here on Twitter. His handle is Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter four, number Letter, letter R, number four, letter H. I'm partially, partially dyslexic, so it's 
Hard for some people. <laughs> letter R, number four, letter H. It's not getting any easier to say it, but there it is on your screen. Anyway. Sooner, sooner or later, you will overcome <laughs> well, this I day. don't know. Sometimes it just looks like a... I believe you. My, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm in your corner. My, I believe in you. Yes. My brother and I are both got like partial dyslexia and sometimes like phone numbers. But what's your phone number? Oh, 727. Whoa, whoa, slow down. One at a time. But anyway, Scott Richards, you can follow him. He posts highlights from the show and also um, a commentary on like world events and news events prophetic things and humorous things and that kind of stuff so follow along with pastor scott here on twitter as well and last but not least our email address questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com if you're listening to us on reach radio you're listening to our our last show pre-recorded and so um, you'll want to use that email address and we'll get to those on our next broadcast and consider uh, when you're not driving your car maybe joining us on one of those other live platforms and you can be part of the show uh, live, live as can be. You never know what's going to happen around here, which always makes it more exciting. Yes. So with all that being said, I know that we want the Lord to speak and that we're handling his holy word. <laughs> and so prayer is very important that we would uh, seek the Lord together. So Sean, would you like to pray today? Happy to. That'd be great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to gather here. We want to invite you to be a part of this broadcast and the main attraction of what we have to share and ultimately what people will take away. Give us all ears to hear your voice and hearts ready to receive it. And thank you that we have the honor of doing this not only in a public forum, but to do so among people with the same heart and intent as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, Scott, I didn't touch base with you before the uh, the show, but is there anything going on you want to share with us? Well, Sometimes you give us a little update. Well, or... well kind of a, an interesting, um, one of those I never thought I'd see this happen uh, sort of updates. Uh, tied into, I think, uh, some things that we really should have anticipated happening uh, in this world, especially in light of the fact that I believe that we are getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus, and a number of heavenly heads-ups are being issued uh, that way. I guess uh, when it comes to uh, the—I never thought uh, I would see this happening in the good old U.S. of A., uh, interesting uh, story run on the Fox News Channel, and uh, the uh, article that I'm uh, reading it from is from uh, the postmillennial.com, but it's uh, a story that's run on the AP and a number of wired services. Hamtramck, it's spelled H-A-M-T-R-A-M-C-K, Hamtramck, would that be it? Uh, Michigan. Sounds good enough. Uh, this town in Michigan whose name I will not attempt to pronounce again. <laughs> town of Michigan. Uh, town of Michigan uh, voted on Tuesday to allow the religious sacrifice of animals Finally. on residential property. Now, there's reason why they made this, uh, the, the city policy, is that uh, this particular town has the highest Muslim population in all of the U.S. and also has an all-Muslim City Council. Now, our mm. resident uh, go-to guy on all things Islam, uh, there is a particular uh, holiday in the Muslim calendar that requires Muslims to sacrifice, is there not? Multiple, but the point of emphasis is among different sects and groups, oftentimes uh, the sacrifice of animals and bloodletting, even of yourself, are in aligned with a lot of ceremonies that don't necessarily go back to Muhammad. So you can't pin this down necessarily as Islamic universal. But what's essentially in mind is the 
following through of some of the Abrahamic ceremonies, which is what the majority of Islam is, without actually going to the sources themselves. When they're offering these sacrifices, it's not necessarily to redeem them from sins, because even the ones who founded the religion weren't exactly certain what purpose it served, but it is in accordance with their renowned spiritual figures throughout history. For example, there's a uh, Shia practice where they cut themselves ceremoniously in grieving one of the descendants of Ali in his death. So in the laying down of these ceremonies, it's going to be, obviously, an individual basis for why they do it, but the group there names it as that. Now, this particular uh, bill, this particular decision by the city council, was tied into uh, the uh, rituals that are, uh, are uh, associated with a Muslim holiday called Eid al-Adna, uh, which I guess is the culmination of the Hajj, the, uh, the Muslim pilgrimage, uh, which does involve some animal sacrifices. And the sacrifices, from what I understand, are to parallel the uh, sacrifice uh, of uh, Isaac, they would believe Ishmael, uh, by Abraham to the Lord. Is it is that correct? Yeah, the disagreement is, of course, whether these sacrifices can be done at home or exclusively at Mecca. And among the other ceremonies, there's the running between the two hills to note Hagar's searching for water, which was actually a pagan ceremony originally. There was the throwing the stones at the altars meant to represent the devil. The problem is the construction of three of them is a more recent innovation. Earlier on, it was just one. And, of course, the circling of the Kaaba in concordance with the seven celestial bodies in the heavens that was co-opted and made into a Muslim practice because reasons. Okay, so um, this town in Michigan uh, is going to uh, give permission, and this is... Uh, essentially uh, how it's described. Uh, the councilman and mayor pro tem, uh, Mohammed Hassan, told the D Detroit Free Press uh, that uh, people can go ahead and do that. Animal rights advocates opposed the ordinance, uh, said that it will lead to more animal abuse and sanitation problems, and that they fear residents will be traumatized by seeing goats, lambs, and cows having their throats slit in their neighbor's backyard. Mm -hmm. So, uh, <laughs> Some interesting thing going on here. Now, the reason why this is passing muster is that some 30 years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the religion known as Santeria, which is a form of uh, voodoo, uh, by the way, practiced uh, in Florida and in Louisiana, uh, largely in this country, uh, also involves animal sacrifice, and uh, that the banning uh, followers of Santeria sacrificing animals to various demons and deities and things like this uh, was uh, definitely an intrusion uh, on their uh, First Amendment right to freedom of religious expression. So because you have that Supreme Court decision 30 years ago, uh, you now have this logically flowing out of all of that. Now, the other interesting thing that ties into all of this and you know, seeing this article about animal sacrifice being given full approval in good old Michigan, of all places, never thought that would happen. Mm. But it also ties into another event that's going on in Israel. Uh, our good friend Joel Rosenberg's All Israel News, very interesting headline today. It says as this, will Itamar Ben-Giver, who we've mentioned a number of times on the program, 
consent to Jewish activists' request to perform animal sacrifices on the Temple Mount. Now, the reason this is interesting is, for those of you who don't know, Itamar Ben-Giver is an individual who was given a plum uh, cabinet ministry position by Benjamin Netanyahu in order to put together the ruling coalition that allows him to be prime minister again uh, of uh, being the head of uh, essentially the all police forces in Israel. Uh, ben Giver, however, uh, in 2006, joined with other activists attempting to perform the Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount, but were stopped by police. Now, if you've followed our program, you know that Itamar Ben Giver's visit to the Temple uh, Mount area, 14 minutes long, and he left, uh, got uh, all of the Muslim world in a hue and a cry and uproar. Our own State Department condemned the action. Uh, a, a session of the UN Security Council was convened at the behest of China and the United Arab Emirates over all of this. This seems to have calmed down. But, very interesting, uh, Israel allows Muslims to visit and pray on the Temple Mount, whereas Jews, according to what's called the status quo agreement that was uh, hammered out in 1967, when Israel retook the area, we would know as the Temple Mount, the Muslims would call it the Noble Sanctuary, uh, only Muslims are allowed to pray and on the Temple Mount and Jews and non-Muslims are only allowed to visit in certain windows of time mm -hmm. on the Temple Mount, a uh, very uh, nasty kind of group called uh, the Waqfa, uh, a group of uh, Jordanians overseas conduct on the Temple Mount. The reason I say they're kind of nasty is because diplomacy is not their strong suit. Uh, if mm -hmm. they sense you were praying, they'll run up and hit you with a stick or worse. Uh, if you are not dressed in a sufficiently modest way, uh, they will also uh, berate you and uh, make you cover up. Uh, a husband and wife who were on the Temple Mount when we were there were holding hands. The uh, wakfa came up and struck them with a stick as well wow. to put an end to all of that. Uh, so, you know, the wakfa oversees the Temple Mount. Well, Ben Giver went up and visited the Temple Mount. And uh, one of the reasons that I think this uh, really threw the Middle East into a tizzy was in 2006, Ben Giver joined other activists who were attempting to perform the, pa the Passover sacrifice, the slaughter of a one-year-old male lamb on the Temple Mount before they uh, were stopped by police. Uh, the, uh, this uh, Returning to the Mount activist group every year petitions the Israeli government for the permission to perform the, uh, the Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount. Routinely, the uh, request is denied. However, this year, in light of the political situation, the Returning to the Mount group wrote to Ben Giver and said, uh, the formation of a fully right-wing government for the first time in a long time, there's a real potential that the Passover sacrifice could be performed in a respectful way with approval from and coordination with all authorities principally the Israeli police, which are under your power as new national security minister of the state of Israel. Now, this puts Ben Giver in between a rock and a hard place. Because on the one side of the coin, he doesn't want to cause undue uh, problems for his patron, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister. However, it would be very difficult for him to deny this request without losing 
serious face because he was deeply involved in seeking to restore uh, ritual sacrifices to the temple. In fact, in 2017, Itamar Ben-Giver served as a defense attorney for members of this activist group who were arrested for planning to perform the sacrifice. The police uh, found out who was going to try to perform the sacrifice. Uh, they, um, uh, with uh, no uh, warning, uh, broke into the homes of these people, hauled them off to jail, kept them there through the Passover so that they could not, uh, in fact, do that sacrifice. Ben Giver said about this, the police must allow Temple Mount activists in the freedom of worship. Uh, Israel is losing its democratic character. It's unimaginable that people are being arrested in the middle of the night because they want to perform a Jewish religious commandment. Mm. So uh, once again, talk about between a rock and a hard place. Not only is Benjamin Netanyahu between a rock and a hard place because this guy's a part of his cabinet, but Ben Giver is between a rock and a hard place. He was asked by Israel's Channel 12 uh, on Tuesday whether he would allow the Passover sacrifice, and he ducked the question. Uh, ben Giver said, about his visit, the Temple Mount is the most important place for the people of Israel. We maintain the freedom of movement for Muslims and Christians, uh, but Jews also to go up to the site, and those who make the threats must be dealt with with an iron fist, he said. Mm. So, uh, as you can probably imagine, uh, not only is Hamas in Gaza uh, up in arms about all of this, so is the Palestinian Authority. Uh, in fact, uh, the Palestinian Authority accused Israel, now catch this, of seeking to build a new temple of God on the Temple Mount. And its prime minister, um, a man by the name of Mohammed Satayah, uh, alleged that Ben Giver's incursions were attempts to turn the Al-Aqsa Mosque into a Jewish temple. Which is what it was. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I think the reason this is all so fascinating is you've not only got Muslims in the United States uh, looking to offer sacrifices at the end of their uh, Eid ceremony. Uh, but here you see in Israel, uh, sacrifices are again coming to the forefront. Now, Sean, if someone were to ask the question, and uh, you know, I think it's fascinating that our own Pastor Bo, uh, when uh, he was a teenager and he was really starting to look into the Bible and starting to read it, came to his dad and said, Dad, why can't we sacrifice an animal in the backyard? <laughs> his dad <laughs> immediately uh, took him to go see a rabbi who explained to him that uh, they, the only place you can do that is on the Temple Mount. And that's so a very important distinction between what's being done in Detroit, or not in Detroit, but in Michigan. Detroit area, yeah. yeah. And what's being done or attempted to be done in Israel. When the Temple would be as a place of sacrifice, the reason why the Jews priesthood was supposed to take so many mikvahs, so many immersions in water, wasn't just to dedicate themselves ceremoniously. They'd be handling blood, they needed to stay sanitized, and of course they were ahead of the time as far as that was concerned in the handling of animals. Right. The pagan priests across the pagan world, at least for the most part, weren't, uh, as I suppose, clean in their methods. But what's important to note about this as well is that when we're looking at both perspectives and noting the continuation of the question, why is this happening? Well, when we look at the Muslim movements in Michigan and the desire to do this in the backyard, I took more time to explain the nuance of the ceremony than the festival itself because what's happening here isn't an enforcement of Sharia. It's a publication and it's a flaunting of their dominion 
in non-Muslim lands. As you stated, they have a majority Muslim council and a majority Muslim population. As you see across the planet, whenever Muslims hold a majority, it's free game, and the non-believers know it. Now, as these animals are being sacrificed, it's essentially saying, not that this is Islam, but we're Muslims and we can do whatever you wa we want. You can't stop us. The numbers make the morality. But if, on the other hand, we look at Israel and their codified practice of sacrifices, it's not to show off to the Arabs that they're superior. It's not even necessarily to call back to ancient ceremonies right. because it's just that time of year. The reason why animals were sacrificed was because sin has consequences. Now, again, you have to talk to the Muslim on a Muslim by Muslim basis as to what right. they're doing and why, because quite frankly, even their own sources don't know the reasons why they're doing what they do most of the time. But for a Jew, for them, someone who calls direct biological lineage to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these sacrifices were to provide what's called atonement, literally at one mint to restore or to cover over sins right. and their consequences because in the Jewish and by extension Christian code of ethics, the wages, the result, the payoff of sin is death. And the God of Israel has provided a provision, a temporary one note, but a provision where the sacrifice of an animal provides a covering, a replacement for you right. through the animal's death. Now, for a Muslim, again, it's going to depend on what their specific imams told them that week. But for the Jews, for those who adhere to Torah, and to those of us who regard this as revelations from the true and living God, they made this point of emphasis not just to deal with their sin problem, but to provide a foreshadowing of what we ultimately believe was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That by the shedding of his blood, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 9 says, he provided a sacrifice once for all. Right. Not yeah. just for his own sins, like the high priest had to, but all of our sins, as yeah. modeled in the Yom Kippur. Yeah, I love what Hebrews chapter 10 says about it. And, you know, again, going back to Bo and seeing his dad, why, why don't we do that today? You know, why, why aren't we <laughs> offering sacrifices right now? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Uh, you know, in Psalm 32, the famous uh, prayer confession, David says, blessed is the man whose sins are covered mm -hmm. by the Lord. The word kafir literally means covered over. It doesn't mean they're taken away, but covered over in terms of having an effect on their relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Only in Jesus are uh, sins taken away. Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, referring to Jesus, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till all of his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, I love that. He's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, we're not perfect in terms of our obedience to God, uh, our, our uh, keeping his laws, his will mm -hmm. in our lives, but we are being sanctified. You know, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Lord the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in our lives to transform us into the relation, uh, into the very image and likeness uh, of Jesus. But 
the beautiful thing here is this. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Here on this earth, as we work out our walk with God in the horizontal, we're going to have our ups and downs. We're going to have times we get it right. We have times we get it wrong. But the Bible says he has perfected us forever. Positionally, in the presence of God, we are clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus. In, in other words, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the beautiful thing. We don't have to continually go through religious rituals in order to cover over our sins or mm-hmm. to to uh, sacrifice things that are valuable to us. Or we don't determine to... our status in society or before God based on our numbers. It's on a person-by-person basis before the Lord. Yeah, so you see just a real difference between religion and relationship here. Prophetically speaking, we do know uh, that uh, there is going to be a temple rebuilt in the last days and that there are going to be animal sacrifices offered mm. on that particular temple. So but, when we see these sort of things happening, I, I think we're seeing, in a sense, the uh, skids being greased mm. uh, for just such an event. Yeah, and just a clarification for those listening, they won't be for sins, but as a remembrance. And what's interesting as well, the um, I <laughs> went through some time in the Christian life before this was explained to me. We want to make sure we do you that service sooner than late. When we're talking about animal sacrifices in the biblical context, the end game isn't the death of an animal. The right. purpose was not just for the animal's throat to be slit, but also for the meat to be cooked <laughs> on the mm-hmm. altar, for it to be eaten by the families, or if it was a sin offering, donated to the priest. Right. And of course, it was to be done in thanksgiving to God for that animal providing that form of atonement. Yeah. So note this, we're not wasting meat when we're saying that this will one day be done. We're not saying it's an inhumane treatment of animals, even... To their credit, uh, most schools of Islamic jurisprudence provide some very strict handlings of how you're supposed to treat animals, but that's for Islamic leaders. As far as you doing it in your backyard with your dad in charge, I don't know. That's probably why it's a bad idea. Yeah, crazy stuff, huh? Yeah, just just note that point. When sacrifices are offered, the animal is eaten. The meat is not sent to waste. Yeah, so, you know, know, when I woke up this morning— Last thing I thought I was going to find out is people going to be, uh, I guess, killing Bessie the cow in Michigan uh, for religious purposes. And uh, this whole deal about offering sacrifices, boy, as uh, Passover gets closer and closer, and, you know, not to terrorize you, Dave, that's your worship leader, um, Easter season is going to be a pause before we know it. I've just got over Christmas. Give me a a month. It's going to be interesting to see as Passover gets nearer and nearer uh, what kind of pressure is being going to to be put upon Itamar Ben-Giver and the Netanyahu government and Israel in terms of its relationship with the rest of the world. And one of the things we know for sure from the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, is there's going to come a day where all nations of the world are going to have one thing in common. They are all going to see Israel as the problem that needs to be eradicated. Mm. So, Until then, the one thing I'm anticipating this April is sinus infection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. That yeah. too. Yeah. Um, I'll throw in a... Yari had a question here because you kind of mentioned it somewhat related. He asked, what, what does it mean that our sins are like scarlet, uh, referencing Isaiah 1, 
18, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. That's the point of the passage. When we're talking about the situation, don't just take part of the point in illustration. It's just describing a stain. Uh, There are some teachers that have made an association with the specific type of insect that was native to Israel, that when it gives birth, its body bursts forth and leaves a crimson scar on the branch, and then eventually when the blood coagulates, oddly enough, it comes across as white. Um, For what it's worth, nice illustration, but whether that was Isaiah's point or not, you can be the judge. The point of emphasis we need to make is that it wasn't just a piecemeal point. As half of the illustration, the whole of the illustration was, they'll be made white as snow. I don't know if you've uh, ever encountered the red dot on the cashmere sweater, the things that tend to stand out the most. (laughs) That's a Seinfeld callback for those of you who are listening. (laughs) But it is definitely something that stands out on any garment, even other scarlet material. When it's saying it's going to be cleansed, that was God's point. The chapter of Isaiah that introduces the whole book is this call for them to reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. It's in a long and lengthy conversation of Israel being called out for the fact they ha- they had and were and would continue to be rebelling against God. They had a stain on them. Mm-hmm. But God doesn't want to punish them for it, to call attention to the scarlet. He wants to cleanse them from it. And if we understand the point is cleansing, we won't get caught up in the nuance of the illustration. Make sure that the point is to finish the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks, Yari, for that for that yeah. question. Um, my son, London is his name, go figure, um, goes to a Christian school here in Tucson, which is a real blessing, and they're doing a debate on uh, evolution. And he started to debate me on the way home from school even today. Okay. But it's really, it's cool the way they do it. They give, I guess they split up the students and give them a different point of view. And I guess the main, you know, the big main points of view is, um, you know, evolution, that we're billions of years old and that we evolved from blobs and whatever to what we are now. Um, the other end of the spectrum that we were created in a week, and then the middle that uh, Genesis less than less than a week, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right, yeah. Yeah. including a day off. I mean, if we're gonna, we're gonna go at this, let's go <laughs> at it. That's true. Yeah. Well, I guess that's another point of view. Yeah. Or that uh, Genesis actually includes periods of time. It wasn't literally you know, sun up, sun down. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. So, I wonder if you guys could kind of go over some of those theories and yeah well let's uh, let's address the uh, age day theory thing right off the bat um you know we can get into uh, an awful lot of evidence for a young earth but uh one of the most important things that we need to do is we need to take a look at the text itself yeah. if we are going to say try as many do to harmonize Darwin, Darwinian evolution, or whatever stripe of evolution you want to uh, adhere to. There are as many as uh, Carter's got green liver pills these days. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea that there's just this monolithic idea about evolutionism. Uh, Darwinian evolution is really passe. You've got uh, punctuated equilibrium now. Uh, you've got all these different uh, variants on all of this that uh, are trying to somehow harmonize the fact that the fossil record does not show this uh, gradual 
uh, parade of uh, progression of, of creatures from the simplest cell, you know, the, the, the classic time life thing where you've got the uh, creature from the Barrel of Monkeys game at the one end and then, you know, slowly you go on up and you've got a man, a modern man at the, uh, the, end of the head of the parade. Yeah. Uh, we just don't see that in, born out in the fossil record and transitional forms that Darwin said uh, would have to be found in order to substantiate his theory. We have not found mm. transitional forms. But, you know, we can go into all of that. But, you know, my uh, background, my education is not in uh, biological sciences. I've had college-level biology classes, obviously. But uh, I have had uh, master's-level courses in Hebrew and Greek. Mm. And when we approached uh, the text in the book of, Genesis, Genesis chapter one, we see uh, repeatedly an emphasis in Genesis chapter one, emphasizing beyond a shadow of a doubt that the intention of the writer, in this case Moses, was to communicate that we are dealing with literal 24-hour solar days mm. in the creation narrative. Mm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we get into this really interesting repetition that we find in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, there we read this. And the Lord God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Uh, then it continues on. Each of the progressive days of creation are uh, encapsulated and summarized with this phrase. There was evening and morning, day the first, or evening and morning, day the second. Mm. There is no stronger way in Hebrew language to communicate a literal 24-hour solar day than that phraseology. Mm. Some people will say, well, you know, couldn't that mean billions and billions of years? Well, not to the person reading it. Uh, again, God's word is, is in the highfalutin terms, is, is it supposed to be perspicacious. In other words, it, it is supposed to be understood by uh, the, the, the reader. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there is no stronger way to be able to do that. The other interesting thing is this. Uh, when you have Hebrew structure that says uh, day with an ordinal, that is with a number. In virtually every uh, example we find in the entire Bible, with one possible exception, uh, it always li means a literal 24-hour solar day. Mm. Uh, those who would say that, uh, you know, well, you know, this could be long periods of time. It could be ages that's going on here. Mm. Well, uh, first of all, that's contradictory to the clear statement we find here, the plain reading of the text. Yep. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8 says that God's words are plain to those who receive it. Mm. Uh, you know, And so we want to take the plain meaning of the text. We don't want to go allegorical. We don't want to go symbolic unless there is some pressing reason in the text to take something as being allegorical or symbolic. We don't see any of that here. Note, in the text. In the text. So we see this structure being made here. Some people say, well, okay, but 
Couldn't this just, you know, some of this the framework theory and, and so on, couldn't this just be the, uh, the description of God's progressive uh, way of creating the heavens and the earth? Well, you got problems there because, among other things, on day the three, uh, third, day literally the three in Hebrew, uh, you've got uh, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit that yields its fruit according to its kind, uh, in the earth. So you've got grass and you've got fruit trees being created before day four, which is when the sun, moon, and stars were created. Mm. So if you've got long periods of time uh, and, uh, you know, this evolutionary thing, first of all, you've got a huge problem. The sun, moon, and stars are created on the fourth day of creation, long after the creation of the heavens and the uh, the the, uh, the the heavens and the earth. Then you've got to somehow put together how uh, all of this grass and fruit bearing trees are going to survive without sunlight yeah. for ages and ages. Yeah. So, in order to harmonize a passage of scripture with a point of view that completely excludes the idea that there is a God. That is the whole point right. of Darwinian evolution. Yeah. Uh, you've really got to fold spindle and mutilate the text. If not, cast it aside altogether. And mm-hmm. to me, the kicker is this. In the book of Ma- uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus, speaking of Adam and Eve, said this, Have you not read that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Mm. Now that creates a real problem for your age dayers and so forth or trying to harmonize evolutionism uh, with uh, the, the message of the gospel because if we are to take Jesus' words plainly here, the creation of Adam and Eve happened at the beginning of creation. Right. Evolutionism says it happened at the end after billions and billions of years had taken place. Jesus said, well, at the end of creation, he made Adam and Eve. But Jesus doesn't say that. So what it comes down to is this, no disrespect intended, but Carl Sagan, the great popularizer of evolution in his Cosmos uh, miniseries and books, Mm. uh, said uh, that, uh, you know, again, that uh, the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all that ever will be, all can be explained without an appeal to God. Mm. Carl Sagan passed away about 20 years ago. He's a moldering in the grave. Jesus Christ not only made these statements about reality, but rose from the dead in a moment of history so that we would take him seriously on these things. In fact, he claimed to be the God who created all things. Right. So he was there. Yeah. So I'd rather take eyewitness testimony than circumstantial evidence based upon the latest scientific theory. Anything yeah. you'd add to that? Yeah, if you're in the context of a debate, obviously the three things that you have to control in any conversation where ideas are being exchanged is to understand what the foundation of an argument is. Uh, Generally, the more, again, fancy terms would be logos, ethos, and pathos for the sake of the age and uh, attention spans of those listening. This is, of course, the facts, the figures, and the feels. If you can include all of those in a statement, then you pretty much control the narrative, the flow of the debate. When it comes to any effective exchange, this can be true of gaming, this can be true of conversation, and this certainly is true of a game conversation like a debate. This is understanding your strengths and your opponent's strengths 
understanding your weaknesses and your opponent's weaknesses and drawing as much attention to them as possible. Now, for each position, obviously no one would hold to them if they had no strengths. If you're aware of what each has going for it, you can attack it not just at its strengths, but overemphasize then from that point the weaknesses. Right. And this can be done again through the emphasizing of those ideas. So starting with the abiogenesis, macroevolution through means of natural selection form of evolution, which is just one of 20 today. The claim is, and the assumption is, based off of the uniformitarian worldview, the idea that things are going to progressively get better and better. That's a, notice logos, ethos, pathos, that's a feel-based idea, not a facts-based one. Nature, if anything else, does not result in conformity, it results in disaster. But the point being made is still made. People like to think that we're getting better, so they'll put that worldview out. You All of Star Trek and, you know, these yeah. sort of things. And note, that makes a person feel good. So how do you counter the feeling with a fact? You say, because of uniformitarianism, the idea that things are always going to get better, why wouldn't that always be assumed to be the way the world works? Each position against it can target that strength and turn it into a weakness. Say, that's not how nature works. The strength of the day-age theory is that we don't challenge the consensus of scientists. We don't claim ourselves to be experts. That would be wrong. That's an ethos. That's a figures-based argument. The person on the abiogenesis, macroevolution argument, and in the seven literal days theory can turn that strength and saying, we're not claiming to be experts. We're just conforming our view of reality towards those who are most apt and equipped right. and educated right. to view it rather than ourselves. You can say that's not accurate logically. You're appealing to authority. Experts can be wrong. You turned the strength into a weakness and done so not just through their figure approach, but through a combination of the feels and the facts. Yeah. The fact is that experts can be wrong and the feels is it's silly to assume that. Now the day eight or the literal seven day position, the one that we take, is based on the fact of Jesus's resurrection and him being qualified to affirm or deny whether Moses meant what he said as he was being dictated Genesis as history or as poetry, as allegory, or as a record of events that only God was the eyewitness of, which we can't test, but we can reference to people who were. Right. And if that God does exist, I think the guy who rose from the dead gives us an idea of what that is. The evolutionist and the day-age theorist can only attack the existence of God, which was your point, and say, that's not a rational eyewitness. We need people to be eyewitnesses, not an mm -hmm. entity without eyes, not an entity that we're not debating the existence of. We're only arguing about science. That's the weakness that they would attempt to put, which is, again, not how debates work, but the goal of the debate is to control the narrative. So if they can change the topic and say, yes, that is our weakness, but we're not debating about God, so get back on topic. Hmm. That's the argument. So for the literal six days of creation and the seventh day God resting, it all stands or falls on, can God do that? Yeah. <laughs> and has his word been plainly stated entirely on the basis of logos? The 
um, day age theory is in conformity with consensus experts and modern uh, opinions of scientists. Right. But you challenge that with the facts and figures of experts can be wrong. Then the evolution theory, that is something that you can attack on the basis of what it's assuming is fundamentally incoherent. Uniformity, not chaos, not atrophy is the word. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the only other thing I would add to that, just as far as getting back to my uh, meager area of, of uh, expertise, uh, is when you take a look at Genesis, the one thing that you discover is why is the book of Genesis called the book of Genesis? Hmm. Well, in Hebrew, it's called Toledoth. Uh, Toledoth means generations, or we would use the term genealogy. Uh, and we see this repeated phrase used throughout the book of Genesis to refer to uh, the lives of individuals that nobody is assuming were mythic. Uh, you know, uh, we were talking a little bit about William Lane Craig's uh, new book where he tries to say that, uh, you know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are, uh, you know, again, mythic and they're historical mythic or something like that. Uh, trying to find some middle ground with, you know, the secular critic. But I think this runs into a real iceberg when we see that, first of all, we're told in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 1, uh, in, in fact, in uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth in which they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. There's that word, toledoth. The same word is a used to say describe the children of seth and the children of cain and uh, the children of noah and the children of abraham and the children of isaac and jacob and so on uh you know this uh this this word is really precise in the book of genesis so if we're going to read into genesis instead of reading out of genesis that's a big problem mm -hmm. we have to throw all that aside and say no, this isn't an intent to write history. Well, clearly, to the Jews, there was no greater, more precious form of historical record than the Toledoth, than the genealogy. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't just 23 and me and looking up your relatives. And, you know, <laughs> to me, I'd say, don't shake your family tree too hard. You never know what kind of nuts are going to fall out mm -hmm. of it. Uh, but to the Jews, your genealogy was everything. Mm -hmm. And it was never considered mythic. It was never considered uh, just a nice sentiment. Uh, when you take a look, for instance, at the book of Nehemiah, uh, the people that could prove their genealogies were considered Jews. The ones who could not were not. Uh, wow. Huge, huge issue for yeah. the Jews. Very serious, serious thing. And I think uh, the word Toledoth that we find in the book of Genesis, we have to realize that when Moses was writing that, he intended it to be a very, very serious thing. He wasn't writing fairy tales or fantasy and then throw that word on top of it mm. like William Lane Craig and others would seem to be indicating they want to have it both ways. Uh, very, very shaky ground we get into there. And you know, the only thing I would add to that is that uh, speaking as a uh, former atheist, when, when I'd see Christians try to meet me halfway and say things like, oh, you can believe in evolution and the Bible, even I as a non-believer knew you couldn't do that. Yeah. You know, you really kind of had to make up your mind because yeah. if you buy evolution and all things can be explained uh, by raw matter and energy interacting over millions and millions of billions of years, why do you need a God at all? Yeah. Oh, well, he was, um, he was orchestrating. Well, why? Why, you know, why throw a God in there? We yeah. can explain all things without it.
Right. That's what Darwin's point was, and that's what the point of evolutionism is. There's a yeah. big difference between science, operational science, which is things that are observable and testable and repeatable in a lab. Uh, that's what gives us, say, you know, space shuttles that go into orbit, or you know, a a you know, a wonderful medicines and things along that line. But when we get into historical science, that means that we're trying to use things that we can see in the here and now today and then extrapolate them back to be able to determine what happened in an era billions of years ago that no one was around to observe. Right. As soon as you do that, you are no longer engaged in science. You are engaged in speculation. Yeah. You're no longer involved with physics. You're involved with metaphysics. The minute you say that chance created all things you've made not a physics statement you've made a metaphysical statement yeah and uh too often just like you mentioned sean if we don't get people to own up in a sense or let them change the conversation by slipping in some of these weasel words mm -hmm. if you will mm -hmm. uh we're gonna lose the debate yeah so yeah don't let them get away with it great stuff yeah great stuff indeed yeah, and like you, that helps for your debate. Yes, yeah, yeah it'd be great to, to hear how that uh, unfolds. Well, when I was Pushridge, right? Yeah. Uh, when I was there, uh, they counted debate points by calling them zingers. Oh, no. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> when uh, it was my year, they had us debate Roman Catholicism versus Protestantism, yeah. and the teacher deliberately put me on the pro-Catholic side. And I'd argue something I disagreed with. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty good about yeah, that. Yeah, that's really well, interesting. That's the Socratic method. My dear uh, yeah. departed uh, daddy, the attorney, uh, told me that uh, one of the greatest things that he experienced was in law school, they would uh, you know, present a case and they would say, okay, you are uh, supporting this side and you're supporting the other. Yeah. And you'd uh, argue the case for a half an hour and then the, the professor would say, switch sides. Yep. Oh, Wow. <laughs> because the whole point is not that you know you passionately believe right. in this argument. The the point is argumentation. Yeah, you know, being able to make an argument either way. Right, uh, and know the uh, facts to present them in a way that follows. Well, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So, and of course, in this context, we hope it boils down to the truth of the yes. word. You oh, yeah. Know? But, yeah, it should. Uh, yes, if you're doing it right. those you're kinds right. of practices will come in handy in evangelism. Believe yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very good. Good stuff. Uh, well, a question from uh, Ridley. What is the significance of, is it? Chorazin. Chorazin. It was an ancient Roman city, is that Well, right? it's uh, one of a uh, uh, number of cities on the Sea of Galilee, the mm. northern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, and uh, it's uh, linked to the city of Capernaum. Uh, along with Bethesda and Capernaum, uh, Chorazin is uh, referred to as being part of the Evangelical Triangle. Now, mm. what that means is, is that the majority of Jesus' ministry and the miracles that he performed, he performed within this group of cities. Mm. Now, one of the things that freaks people out is that Jesus, uh, toward the end of his ministry, uh, cursed the city of Chorazin. Uh, we're told in Matthew chapter 11, uh, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed and you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Uh, and an occasion, occasional, another uh, uh, 
rendering of this same uh, woe is recorded in Luke chapter 10. Uh, and those are the only times that Chorazin is mentioned in the Bible. Well, what specific miracles did Jesus do there? We aren't told. Mm. Uh, we're told what he did in Bethsaida. We are told what he did in Capernaum. But uh, Chorazin, we are not told specifically. But because they were so nearby and because Jesus was there uh, throughout uh, the uh, majority of his earthly ministry, these people had a front row center seat. Yeah. Uh, for anything that Jesus would do. In fact, because they are so situated, uh, anyone hearing, wow, do you hear this guy is like, um, you know, raising people from the dead? Uh, maybe we need to go down there and check that out. Uh, they had very easy access to all of this. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the bottom line, people will say, oh, well, you know, it's going to be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than them. Uh, well, you know, again, uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 from Everyone whom much has been given, much will be demanded. And the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Um, We're responsible for the amount of light that we've received. And these individuals Mm. had no reason whatsoever, Uh, not just uh, personally, Jesus' faultless character growing up in that particular area and being Mm. around there. They could examine his character, Mm. uh, you know, up close and personal. Uh, the, The prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that, you know, for instance, he spoke of in a synagogue in Capernaum. Mm-hmm. Um, they could check those things out for themselves. And, of course, uh, doing the only thing, doing things that only God could do, walking on water, uh, raising people from the dead, healing people with incurable diseases like paralysis or leprosy, mm-hmm. all these sort of things happened there. So yeah. no one from Chorazin or Bethsaida or Capernaum could say, oh, we didn't know. Yeah, Not enough information. So. Is that where we had those fish? Um, no. No, there was this uh, fish shack in the coastline <laughs> and we were doing our uh, trip over the Sea of Galilee and uh, I freaked out Robert Furrow by sneaking up behind him, having the whole fish skeleton in my mouth. He found it unnerving. Yes, <laughs> yes. They gave you actual Galilean fish to eat on ah. this uh, particular journey uh, with the head and the eyes still on them. Oh, yeah. Don't be distracted if a little yeah. tear comes out. You, yeah. You, you can just tell yourself it's butter. Yeah. 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 Oh so goodness. anyway, that's uh, that's what Corazon was um, all about. And yeah. Boy, what a heads up for people in our culture. The fact that, you know, you're watching a program like this or, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the, uh, the good news of Jesus is so readily available to people, uh, nobody's going to be able to say, if they stand before the Lord, oh, nobody told me, or I didn't have access, right. you know, right. and God will hold us accountable for that light. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? No. Crazy? No. Uh, one last question coming off the end of the show, but from Craig. Um, in Revelation, it says, he who adds or takes away from this book. Um, is he talking just about Revelation? Because the Bible is a complete book didn't exist at that time. So Actually, it, just it did. Taken? So, okay, yeah, at the time of Revelation, that was the capstone, and we can verify not just in the text literally they put it at the end for a reason but even john's disciple polycarp directly affirmed that john spent the last of his days in ephesus where he wrote revelation the gospel of john and his epistles before his physical death after the exile on patmos so when he was documenting revelation that was after he had already borne witness to what would make the gospel of john and the conversations would be put in Ephesus. And as he notes this footnote in the book of Revelation, led by the Holy Spirit, at that point, the rest of the Bible had already been written, New and Old Testament. 
And with that capstone, it would apply to the whole of Scripture. And by the way, that is not the first time that someone penned those words inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy, not to add or take away from God's law. So note that point. Yeah, and you know, there's a uh, fascinating Scripture in uh, Proverbs chapter 30 that uh, pertains to all of this. You know, certain people like, say, Mormons will say, well, you know, we've got another testament of, of Jesus Christ right. here, and you're just, uh, you know, trying to apply this one particular passage across the board. Um, I love uh, this passage in Proverbs 30 in verse 5. It says, every word of God is pure. Mm. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Okay. <laughs> You know, someone will say, well, you know, that just applied to the book of Revelation, you know, okay. But uh, the other thing that we can know, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that, first of all, adding to God's words is sooner or later going to show you to be a liar, either because your additions to God's words are going to completely contradict what Jesus and his apostles or the prophets taught about the nature of God, which happens quite frequently in Mormonism. Uh, or uh, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot by making historical inaccuracies or contradicting yourself or having to have councils that receive new revelations from God to make sure your particular revelation fits. Um, When we take a look at the Word of God, it stands. It's Mm -hmm. historically accurate. It's doctrinally consistent. But most importantly, it's supernaturally verified through predictive prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Great. Well, we're the end of our show. It's Friday, so we wish you a wonderful uh, weekend. We'll be back on Monday once again. A Reason for Hope is uh, Monday through Friday, same time, same places. Uh, Sean, thanks. And on uh, Sunday, we're going to be talking about uh, what you should do if you ever find the perfect church. (laughs) From the Book of Acts. Right. It's going to be a fun study. Don't join it because you'll ruin it. It's going to be a fun study. Or get struck dead. (laughs) That's great. Yep, here at Calvary Christian Fellowship on Sundays, 8, 9.30, and 11 o'clock if you're looking for somewhere to... So fellowship, if not, enjoy your home church. God bless you. Thank you for being part of Reason of Hope. We will see you on Monday. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.